Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. It's the 1990s, and in Adelaide lived a woman called Michelle Burgess. Married with two children, Michelle had a family of her own from a young age of 15, but she always craved a life of her own. Her husband Darren was loyal, perhaps too loyal, and often let her do whatever she wanted. A few streets down was another family house, the Matthews family. Kevin Matthews had a wife and three sons. But how do these families connect? Kevin was Darren's boss, and when Michelle met Kevin, the pair were absolutely smitten. She had to have him. And so started what would have been a very open affair. Kevin was just one man of many under what people would later openly call Michelle's spell. But there were conditions to that affair that Kevin would later learn about. Michelle told Kevin that they could be happy together, although there was only one way for their relationship to flourish. Their spouses had to be completely out of the picture. And so Michelle began to organise and draw up murder contracts. She drew up details of where their targets worked, their movements throughout the day, their phone numbers. Everything was being monitored, waiting for the right moment. But Kevin wouldn't be the one to get his hands dirty. Instead, Michelle recruited one of her other many boyfriends, a career criminal and hitman, David Key, to carry out the act. By Friday of that week, Carolyn's three boys came home to find their mother in the kitchen, on the floor, completely covered in stab wounds. The boys attempted CPR, but it was too late. Carolyn was gone. Michelle and Kevin received 30 years in prison, David, the hitman, was jailed for 20 years. But how is it that Michelle successfully cast all these men under her spell to drive them to do these heinous acts? What are the differences between male and female psychopaths? How can sexuality be used as a tool for murder? That's on today's episode of Motive and Method. Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson-Munro, criminal psychologist. And I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet, criminologist and forensic scientist. And today we're talking about a subject I'm very interested in, black widows. What do you know about them, Xanth? I find black widows very interesting, Tim, because they're really the extreme of female behaviour, aren't they? They're really kind of the worst of the worst when it comes to women. So today I think we're going to be really deep diving into who these women are, what they are, how they behave, and really looking deep at some of those personality traits. But what's your relationship with this topic? Well, I've examined a few of them over the years. Psychopathic women, bad, not mad. 
using their sexuality to inveigle men to kill on their behalf. They are incredibly manipulative, aren't we? We've talked about this topic quite a lot and we're bringing in a case today because that really exemplifies what we're going to be talking about. And that case is Michelle Burgess. And we've looked at this a couple of years ago. We've talked about Michelle quite a lot over the years because she is really a great example, isn't she? She had manipulation of men into doing pretty much anything that she wanted them to do. Crimes were terrible. And, uh, of course, it involves significant others in terms of this love tryst that was going on. Yeah, so we're bringing in that case. And, and that's why we're also going to be talking to Derek Pedley, who's written a whole book about Michelle. So you and I know the case pretty well. Derek obviously knows it really well. So I think that's going to give us access to looking at the details of not only the Burgess case and the men kind of in her inner circle that she was manipulating, but obviously the deeper topic of Black Widows and just how extreme their behaviours can be. I'm looking forward to interviewing Derek. I think he'll bring some valuable insights to this. Absolutely. Derek, you've written a fabulous book about black widows. What motivated you to do it? I was looking for a new story after I'd written two books on uh, Brendan Abbott, The Postcard Bandit. Yeah. I didn't want to just be known as the, the, that guy who wrote the Brendan Abbott books. I wanted to do uh, find another story that was uh, as intriguing. Um, being from South Australia, I wanted to find a fairly iconic crime. So, so I sort of scoured the advertiser, the newspaper I worked, worked at, the advertiser newspaper files for a, a story that perhaps had been in the headlines, but perhaps still had a, had a few, a few legs left in it, perhaps hadn't been investigated properly. And mm. the moment I saw the headline, I ate the murder contract and it was tasty. I thought, I think I'm onto something here. Absolutely. That's certainly pretty catchy, isn't it? So obviously there was much more to the story than that. So can you just give us a really quick snapshot of Michelle Burgess, because she's the black widow we're going to be talking about, and that's the, obviously the, 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 the case you studied for your book. Can you just give us a, a quick synopsis of Michelle Burgess and you know the men in her life that she manipulated? Okay, well, Michelle Burgess, on the face of it, was a suburban housewife who was a, a serial cheater. Her, uh, she was married to a lovely, lovely man, got an absolute heart of gold, and she fell pregnant to him quite early in life. And she just had a pattern of behaviour where he would find her in compromising positions with other men. I'm, I'm a little hazy on Michelle's childhood. I think I only managed to speak to one childhood friend who talked about her being a, a person who lived uh, a life of fantasy. So that was something significant. I was wondering if she had priors, whether she had a prior forensic history or whether she just exploded through this uh, case. No, there was a definite pattern of behaviour and and I do explore that in the book. They, her and her husband were part of, he worked for a tyre company and, you know, the the tyre company had its own sort of social circle and, and clicked and there would be, Christmas parties and social clubs, those kind of things. And Michelle's behaviour with other uh, tyre company staff became really quite flagrant and most significantly with her husband, Darren's boss, Kevin Matthews. Yeah. Do do you think she was motivated by power as well and money beyond lust? I mean, it's often a, a sort of fusing of those sort of issues. Trying to work out what was going through Michelle Burgess's mind in the weeks and months leading up to the horrific crime that, that she instigated, 
a very difficult thing to do because she made some just really incomprehensible decisions. She's a long way from being a master criminal, but central to it all was having control of men. That was certainly yeah. something that, that she loved to do. Yes. And, and that seems to be a central tenet. For the, I've examined a few of them. I've done reports on them over the years uh, where they've been caught in most horrible circumstances. And like you've observed, Derek, it's often about power and control. And I think that fuses into their libido in a strange way. Yes, yeah. Sex and particularly in like in offices and and hotel car parks and uh, Michelle liked exciting sex. There's there's no doubt about that. I think, recall my book actually opens with them in in a park somewhere uh, doing the deed. And Kevin's actually seen by one of his uh, former employees, unfortunately for him, and then uh, that actually becomes a, a, a scene in a murder case. So tell us how the actual crime came about. She's having an affair, obviously, after a pattern of this type of behaviour. So what is the next step? What do they choose to do now as a couple? They are living a life of fantasy in uh, hotel rooms across Adelaide. Kevin's telling himself that, that he's, uh, you know, a, a big-time businessman who's got a, a mistress on the side and uh, they go to hotels at lunchtime and they get drunk and um, on whiskey and uh, they spend afternoons in hotels and that's when this dark plot first starts to take shape. They start talking about getting rid of their respective spouses and, uh, and hiring a hitman to do it, uh, which is crazy talk. If you recall, how far into the relationship was that? Was it early doors or had they had a few liaisons? They'd had a few liaisons. It took a while before it, it, it developed uh, into that, yes. Because I you know, I often wonder and I've observed it actually where they groom the men. They get them in, they have exciting sex and that seems to be a central theme of the ones I've examined as well. Sex in the bush, sex in car parks sex for sex's sake, but it's all about grooming the male. And at some point, I think they actually blew they're in love with these people and they're then more pliable and malleable to do their bidding. Yeah, you mean the men think they're in love? Yes, yeah. yes. I don't think the women are in love at all. No, I don't think they have the capacity for that. But when you say she hired a hitman, that's an interesting aside too, isn't it? Because the hitman was also one of her boyfriend. He did become a boyfriend, yes. I mean, once... Once a man came across Michelle's uh, eye line, I mean, there were even detectives who, that, that she batted her eyelids at along the way too. But, but she was the friend, the hitman was the brother of a friend of Michelle's. They met out the front of Michelle's kid's school. <laughs> yeah, it was D David William Edgar Key, the hitman from Davron Park, which <laughs> um, if, if you're from Adelaide, um, you'll know it's, uh, it's not a particularly upmarket area of the world. So excuse the pun, it's a very sticky web, isn't it? They're um, getting in family members involved, they're plotting and planning and uh, it's what black widows do. Why are they called black widows, by the way? Uh, well, look, based on the, the behaviour that I saw or, or certainly collected evidence on, I didn't see it, thankfully, across five or six different relationships, it was very much like the the Black Widow Spider, in that she would uh, she would drag these men into her lair and and have, have her way with them, and then and and more importantly, they would then do her bidding uh, up to and including murder. And on that, the cases I've had, the ex-lover becomes the victim of the new lover, so she'll move on to another relationship. 
and then get the new lover to kill the ex-lover. And uh, it's part of the pattern. And that's my understanding why they're called black widows, you know, because they mimic the behaviour of black widow spiders. Well, don't black widow spiders, don't they do exactly that? They, they mate and then kill? Yes. I think, isn't that? Yeah. So I think it's a very apt term. But I think it would also be useful because uh, to me, like black widows are female psychopaths. And I think that female psychopaths and male psychopaths are different. And a lot of people don't really recognise the differences. But I think with the females, there are certain personality traits that they're very manipulative, very coercive, very controlling. Sex is a weapon. And often they do get men to do their bidding for them, whereas a male psychopath, if he's violent or if he wants to dispatch someone, he's more likely to do it himself than a female psychopath. I think the common ingredient is a lack of remorse, a lack of empathy. The methodology is different and the Mm -hmm. motives can be different, but it's ultimately also about power. Even with male psychopaths who are hitmen, it's often about power and money. They don't care about the victims at all. I love the title of the book, Dead by Friday. Where did that come from? That came from a note scribbled on the back of an envelope when Michelle was trying to work out exactly when everything would unfold. And she wrote the words, from my memory, he wanted one done this week and one next, in brackets, by Friday. And <laughs> it was actually only a few weeks before the book was due to uh, to be published that it suddenly, suddenly struck me, Dead by Friday. It's a great title. It is a great title. And was that note then for the hitman or was that for Matthews? Because she made Matthews draw up contracts, didn't she, that everyone had to sign, you know, that were detailed. They had photographs of the victims. You know, she was she was incredibly organised and f- coercing him into that organisation as well. Very much so. And in fact, one of those contracts ended up in the hands of police because the, the bumbling hitman kept it in his wallet. And um, <laughs> when he was arrested on a completely separate matter, uh, police have stumbled across this and, of course, much, much later have realised that was actually a murder contract, uh, the very same one that he... He, uh, he folded up, uh, put into a sandwich and ate, as he told the court. That's an extraordinary tale of stupidity, isn't it? And tragedy. I know. I shouldn't laugh, but sometimes the, peop- the things these, these people do in the, you know, in the committing these crimes are just astounding, aren't they? I mean, and it is awful because we haven't actually got to the, you know, the actual murders yet. So obviously we have the murder contracts. Key has been enlisted to help and... So how did it actually play out on the day when they decided to kill Carol Matthews, who was obviously the wife that they wanted to get rid of? And we ought to mention there are three children also in this mix, the Matthews children. There are, yeah. Carolyn was an incredible mother of three and she tried very hard to be a, a good wife to uh, to Kevin, but he uh, he had this wandering eye. There had been several attempts to set up the murder in the weeks and months leading up. There had been some cash paid to David Key. He went and blew that on speed immediately instead of buying a gun. As you do. As you do. On the day, Michelle has instigated what's happened that afternoon. I recall that Michelle went to see Kevin at his business that afternoon and and pressured him into putting the plan into action. And uh, he was reluctant, but eventually agreed. So, and the plan was for him to return home pick up his three boys, take them to the video store and create a window of opportunity for her and David Key to enter the Matthews family home in West Westlakes and kill Carolyn Matthews. So he's a pretty weak character by the sound of it. He's been suborned by her. He's tried to resist her, the pressure that she put on him. 
but eventually capitulated. You've really got to wonder about his mindset too. His wife, his children, he creates an alibi for himself. Without It's, it's classic what I was talking about, about psychopaths, no empathy, no remorse. So no thought about the three children, let alone his poor deceased wife. Mm. So Key and Burgess then arrive at the house, don't they? In essence, force their way into the Matthews property and and she's home alone at this stage because he's taken the boys to the video store. What happens next? Well, Key also doesn't want to do this and they're arguing loudly all the way from the car to the Matthews home and um, Michelle is telling him that he, if he doesn't do it, he's not a man. I think she accuses him of being a rapist over some other incident. She just throws every kind of sort of insult she can at him to try and rile him up. Uh, and he's, he's pumped full of a, a fair amount of drugs too. They get to uh, the house where unfortunately Carolyn Matthews has just came, come out with um, uh, the recycling, which she's taken to uh, the bin and she encounters them. And that's when Key has sort of pulled the picture out of his wallet and said, this is, you know, this is her, and they pushed her back inside. I think she was she was possibly punched, if I recall correctly. They push her back inside, and they trap her in her small family kitchen, and a wiltshire knife, kitchen knife, is pulled mm-hmm. out. I'm trying to think. I think it was Michelle yep. who pulled it out and gave yep. it to David, and then, and then taunted him and coaxed him into into, into doing it and. So they obviously then, so Key then stabs her. Do you know how many times he stabbed her? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a lot. Yeah. Uh, no, it was a lot. I remember it was a lot. because It was, it was almost was, frenzied. Yeah, it was. It was what we would class as overkill. Like, and which seemed, I mean, this was an execution, wasn't it really? And it seemed odd to me. I didn't know that he was high at the time because I remember thinking when I read the details of the case, it was strange that it was so frenzied given this was not a personal kill for him. He was a hitman. Well, that's because he was so so fired up by Michelle. He was so angry at her, all of that anger he directed at Carolyn Matthews. Yeah, that's my sort of take on it too, and getting rid of the frustration. And uh, it's classic see what you made me do stuff too, isn't it, from a male's perspective. I'm interested in what you were saying about him uh, geeing him up in the car, exerting all sorts of control and power, uh, and there's no way out for him. Of course there is. He could have decided not to do it. But um, he's overwhelmed by all this. And you've got to wonder what her motivation was. He didn't want to do it, but she's determined to do it. So it's really exerting power over the dead person too, isn't it? It's uh, it's full of hatred and venom. And this is all coming from one person. Without mm. her, none of this would have happened which is quite extraordinary, really, isn't it? So then obviously they've stabbed. She's now deceased or, or certainly dying in her own home. They leave. What happens next? Uh, Kevin arrives back from the video store with the three boys. He lingers in the car, allowing his three sons to enter the home first. And, and we should say the these cover. these boys are like, I think they were 12, 13 and 16 from memory. Uh, most critical time in their adolescent <laughs> development. Love their mother by the sound of it. And... That's a memory that they will never erase. They and will he be traumatised. He, he knew what he was sending them into and he stayed back. Well, that's his weakness too, isn't it? He's, he's weak. And uh, so he's setting the kids in first because um, he doesn't want to encounter it on his own. Unbelievable. He's, what, pretending to be the grieving husband when this is discovered? 
Oh, very much so. He flies into a into a frenzy. He tries to perform CPR. His boys uh, get on the phone to Triple O. All three of those boys acted incredibly well throughout the situation and they tried so hard to save their mum. But people very quickly picked up on the fact that Kevin just wasn't behaving the way a grieving husband should. Yeah, there's a lot of things. Uh, after Michelle was arrested, he wore a hat to court with uh, forever written on it, which was just the most bizarre thing to do. So when she was being prosecuted, he wore a hat to court that says forever on it, like forever hers? Is that what he's saying? Like this? Yes. How did they get busted? I'm intrigued. How do the cops get onto these guys? So as I mentioned, David Key was picked up on an unrelated effect and that was when they discovered the murder contract. Yeah. Uh, in, in, his, uh, in his wallet. So they took a copy of that, which obviously turned out to be pretty handy evidence later on. The police started, they certainly put bugs into Michelle's home and started listening in to what was going on in her life. By now, she'd taken up with David Key pretty much full time. Kevin was uh, obviously after Carolyn's murder, they, they, they backed off from each other. Although it's interesting to note that on the night that he buried his wife, Kevin did find the time to go off for a liaison uh, with Michelle that night, which was just extraordinary. I had a case in Melbourne where uh, the Black Widow persuaded a guy to kill another guy and then they had sex in the bushes about 100 metres away. So it's not unusual. I think they become very aroused by what's going on. That was proximal to the murder. This is proximal to the funeral. Yeah, so it's it's almost like she's rewarding him. Yeah, there's some just extraordinary behaviour throughout this case. It's extraordinary to us and I think the people who are listening because it's just so out there. You just wonder how could this possibly be? What drives somebody to commit this sort of crime? What drives a person to be so manipulated in this way? And yet the chemistry between these types of people is very strong. It's like it's almost symbiotic. They have needs, the men, they have needs to be loved, they have sexual needs and so on, and the women have a strong need to control, own and manipulate. Yeah, I find the black widows really interesting in themselves, but probably more so even the men that are controlled by these women because they're not necessarily, I mean, Matthews was weak, clearly, but they're not necessarily weak men. Sometimes they surprise you, the kinds of guys these women do target and manage to control. But Derek, do you think there's, from your experience of looking at this case and possibly others, do you think there's a particular kind of man that these women are drawn to? Uh, Men with low self-esteem? Yeah. Men who, who wouldn't necessarily do very well with women usually. I think it's fair to say that's the case here. So do you uh, think she it, loved Bond them then? So by what that, I mean, I'm sure you know what I mean, but just in case any of our listeners don't. So just compliments and over the top kind of like, you know, lots of affection and lavishing attention on someone. Do you think that's one of the techniques these women use and these men are just not used to it and they're kind of like taken back by it and in awe of these women who are treating them like this? Very much so. One of the earliest times Kevin had sex with Michelle was on his office desk and I think he was very taken by a woman who would do something as exciting as that. Something out Uh, of the movies, right? It's it's like a movie scene to him. He feels empowered. He's the big boss of the tyre shop 
and he's getting laid on his office desk. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. So, does are it? we saying that these women make, in in some ways at least, make the men feel more like men, like more like empowered, more dominant? Maybe they, you know, they fulfil their needs in a way that they're not getting elsewhere. Oh yeah, yeah. So I would absolutely agree with that. At, at the same time, it, it's simply not the case. They're, they're men who are in, incredibly weak and, and and don't have a backbone. And she's she's trying to convince them that, that they're the hero of the situation when you know she's pulling the strings all the time. And another factor, another thing that really stuck in my mind in this case was the love poetry. Terrible, terrible love poetry. Well, badly um, written. Uh... Yeah. Kevin fancied himself as a poet and he wrote a particularly long uh, wedding fantasy to Michelle while so she was So he wanted in... to marry her? Oh, very much so. They had a, a big wedding fantasy. But David William Edgar Key, oh, sorry, I just love saying his whole name, also was into love poetry. His was a, a little briefer. Uh, <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue, and fuck, I love you. Oh, my, no, he did not. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it. I, my first job was, uh, I was the resident psychologist at Parramatta Jail back in the late 70s when it was a tough old jail and I used to see these poems all the time, just infantile with with little hearts all over because there was no internet then. They would write letters and they'd have little hearts with arrows through them and quite childish, yeah? It's extraordinary stuff. Well, you know, that would have won me over for sure, that poem right there, you know, sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, Julie noted. <laughs> The other thing, just on that, she's in jail and I gather that she's not allowed to interact with male prison officers who might be seen to be vulnerable because she's continuing the games. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know how long it's been since that's actually occurred, but there was a policy instituted because there were definitely some incidences of sexual favours involving prison guards. From what I've seen of women like this, you know, this is this is just the way they've behaved since they were basically became women. You know, they've always manipulated men, controlled men, coerced them into doing what they want. And obviously not all of them go on to coerce men into killing for them. But these type of women, you know, have got a long history of using sexuality in this way and they're never going to stop. As long as they can get men to react to them, they're going to continue to try and manipulate them for personal gain. And that may be in prison. That could be favours. It could be getting people to smuggle things in. It could be anything, couldn't it? And she's never going to stop whilst men keep giving, you know, are still susceptible to this behaviour. Well, it's what gives them a sense of fulfilment. It's what drives them. This love bombing you were describing, of course, men can be guilty of that as well. And certainly in toxic, narcissistic relationships, they often, that's one of the red flags to look out for. When they start love bombing you, sending you flowers and chocolates every day, 30 calls a day, and whatever your gender may be, if you're vulnerable, you respond to this. You're not used to it. And we've talked about this before when we talked about domestic violence, actually, when, you know, especially husbands go on to kill or males go on to kill partners or ex-partners. Often it starts as that kind of love bombing relationship. They, These controlling men are very good at targeting women who may be susceptible to it, but but not necessarily weak women. A lot of these are some of the, you know, it just it's this really insidious behaviour by these coercive men, but ultimately they had a lot of the same traits as people like Michelle Burgess. They're very manipulative and controlling and persuasive. But they generally don't inveigle women to go and kill other men. Although I have, of... I have heard of one woman who did coerce another woman into helping to kill her grandfather 
So there are all sorts of intimate relationships that can reflect this same pattern of coercion, control, and, and when it's at its worst, ultimately violence. Absolutely. And it can escalate. I think once people are groomed and they're desensitised, all bets are off. They can be made to do just about anything. They're dangerous people. Have you written another book? I have. It arrived in my hands three days ago. Oh, the final, Congratulations. The final copy. Yes. Oh, let's, let's have a look. Crazy, Crazy bastard. bastard. That could be about me. A memoir of forced <laughs> adoption. Okay, so what's the premise of this one? Because obviously this is a big step away from Michelle Burgess. Maybe you needed that after studying her for so long because she is certainly a piece of work. Yeah. This is, as you say, a memoir of my adoption. I received a letter from my mother in 2018. She had died five years previously. Her executor finally decided to send it to me. It was written in 1972 when she was in King Edward Memorial Hospital under pressure to surrender me. And the contents of that letter, it was 2,700 words detailing what had happened to her. And that sort of, that Set me out on a on a spiritual journey. I quit. Uh, I quit the advertiser. I took a package just as um, in March 2020, just as the um, as the pandemic started, and I spent the last few years unraveling her her history and and mine. So what this is an incredibly personal journey for you, then. Yes, and it's um, it's hugely gratifying to finally get it in my hands because I've got to say, it's over the last four years, it's often felt like I wasn't going to. Well, mate, that's uh, it's yeah. courageous too. So it's been published now. It has, um, and I was on Every Family Has a Secret last year. SBS turned up my father and four half-brothers, and Noni Hazelhurst very kindly read the book and has written a very nice cover line for me. At the moment, I'm in that limbo of people are either going to love me or hate me. I don't think there's going to be an in-between on this book because as an adoptee, I've had issues with addiction, compulsion, and obsession, so I've un unraveled all of that. There's, it's no coincidence that I wrote two books on Brendan Abbott, not one, you know, and a telly movie as well. I, I have issues with obsession, so I've unraveled all of that and also my mother's extraordinary life. And I've weaved it into a, into a story and it even has the, the final chapter is, is a bullshit happy ending. I'd love to read it. Yeah, so me too. Sounds it, fascinating. Uh, the Usual Places. It's available in the usual yes, places. It, it comes out uh, next month. I'm going to uh, Perth Festival this weekend to talk about it for the first time. So I'm uh, I'm oh. a little nervous. And, I'm um, sure. It's, congratulations. I mean, yeah, Tim and I have both written a few books and I know that fear when it first comes out. And it must be significantly more serious, that, that fear, when it's it's your story. So I really, I think that's really quite something that you've taken that step to share that with the world and you know I think as an adoptee that's probably going to speak to a lot of people who've been through something similar and and the struggles you've had as a result of your history I think will actually really resonate with I a lot of people. people and will applaud you for yeah, it, frankly yeah it takes great courage I'm sure. I guess I mean you you said you were looking for a story you wanted to write a book a new a new story and you came across Burgess but what was it really that stood out? Because I can think of a number of cases of black widows and and they are interesting as individuals. But what was it about Burgess to you that really made you think, God, somebody's got to write this book? It, it was her incomprehensible behaviour. And the more I researched on it, the further the case went, there'd be a, a, another man and then another man. And because even when I, after David Key locked up, then Jason Colenso arrived on the scene and he became Michelle's white knight. Instead, there was always a man who was wanting to step up and locally the, the question was always, what do are, what are men see in this woman? And the joke was always, she must be able to suck a golf ball through a, a garden hose, you know. <laughs> wow. Um, and that may, maybe that's the case. But, you know, what was it about this woman? Because she's not, 
especially attractive. Yep. Well, you um, hit what, on a great uh, point because a lot of the time they're not particularly physically attractive. If you saw a picture of them, and I've seen lots of them, I think, so what is it about this woman? But there is something, there is something so charismatic and powerful about their personalities that a certain type of man is susceptible to be drawn in. It's almost like black magic. It's chemistry. It's Jungian. Jungian witches. You yeah. Know? And uh, look, sexual energy is not just about physical appearance, you know, as we know. Oh, it's, for it's, sure. It's, it's, for it's sure. a whole lot of dynamics. And as I said earlier, it's a symbiotic relationship. These men have needs. And she has needs. They have yep. needs. And for a short time, it's a relationship made in hell, you know, uh, until it unravels and then it's even worse. Well, yeah, she's a fascinating study. So are the men that she's manipulated. I haven't read your book, but I will because I, I think she's certainly something. I think she's just an example of black widows, I think, that really captures a lot of their really worst traits. And so I think that would be a great book if anyone is interested in this topic. And I'll certainly be looking up your new book because that sounds like a fascinating read as well. So, And is it true she got the longest sentence in South Australian criminal history? 30 years. Yes. At that time, it's been surpassed yeah. in several other cases yeah. since, but at the time, that, that was the case. Yes. 30 years, wasn't it? They got 30 years. Her and Matthews both got 30. And I think Key got 20 years. So he, he should be out now. Key, Key is probably out in the community. He was transferred back to Perth to be closer to family. But I would say almost certainly David Key is uh, walking free amongst us again. Well, here's a question for you then. So David Key obviously committed the violent offence, the actual murder itself. He's physically the one who stabbed Carol Matthews. So do you think without Burgess's influence, he is now not a danger to the community? Yeah, no, he's uh, he was a low-level criminal with a drug habit uh, murder was way above his pay grade. That's not to say he's not still a dangerous man. He he, he stabbed a woman to death mm -hmm. without that particular set of circumstances and being full of drugs and having the knife thrust into his hand and being taunted. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't see, see him as being a... It, a, a it's a, unlikely a, that all those dynamics would mm. come again, but you would hope that during the time that he spent in jail, A, matured, B, had treatment, C, recognises the red flags without speaking about him, uh, but generally that's a big ask for a lot of these people. They lack insight and they tend to go on to other things. I mean, the, the Anita Cobby killers, they were low-grade crims as well. And I, they were at Parramatta Jail when I worked there. They weren't particularly well regarded. And then one night they became an international kind of headline because of what they did. So, But again, there was a ringleader. There was like a very strong influence, you yes. know, without that one person would all of those other guys gone along with it that's a question there's always there always seems to be one main protagonist mm. and other people fall in behind and it's the strength of that personality which drives what happens well thank you very much is there anything more that you wanted to say often i'll flick through the book and go oh i should have talked about that i should have talked about that and obviously there's a lot there there's a lot of detail there and that's why i'd be interested in reading it because i know i know the bones of the case and as i said tim and i've worked on this case a little bit, we've talked about it before, but I'm sure there's a lot more in there that would be fascinating in terms of filling out those details. Well, one of the things I had to investigate for my memoir was why am I obsessive? So I had to, I had to really drill down on that and why I was prepared to spend five years, in Brendan Abbott's case, 10 years, 
pursuing the cases. And Did you find an answer as to why you're obsessive? Unmet needs in my in my childhood. The, the 70 days I spent in a crib without a mother at the start of my life mm. is probably the short answer. Yeah, that critical bonding period. But being obsessive has made you a great journalist. Detail. The one really handy thing for me has been the level of detail. Like I've, I've actually had reason to be looking back at both my books just recently because Brendan Abbott's been in the, in the news again just lately. And I read it and I think, wow, you didn't just go to this guy, you went to this guy and this guy. And so I, I drilled down a lot further than was ever probably necessary. But as a result, you know, the, the books, I think, stand up pretty well. But obsession in other parts of my life hasn't been particularly helpful to me. No, but you've had the insight to recognise that and to reflect on that and look for the source of that. So, you know, you've already gone a long way down that journey. I, I think I have, yes. I, and I've got the answers I needed. A lot of them were difficult, but yes, that's true. Well, I think that's really empowering for a lot of people who will listen to this as well, who may be able to see some of their histories in what you've spoken about. So I think that's that's great that you shared that with us and you're going to share it soon with the world via yes. your new book. Yeah, good luck with it, mate. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, fascinating talking to you. Thanks so much, Derek. Thank you both. What a fascinating guy. It's interesting how, I mean, the self-disclosure, I think, is incredibly courageous, but how that sort of obsessionalism has enabled him to write such an interesting book from the insights of a journalist, but probably across the facts in many ways others are not. Yeah, and I think that she is one of those epitomes of the Black Widow, and I think we can learn a lot from that case that can be used more generally in terms of these type of coercive behaviours in women because they're obviously often not recognised, and I think that in those extreme cases we see it, but I think that you know there are other less obvious cases in the world. We'll all know people who have these coercive tendencies, and I think it really highlights some of those. Well, I think the issue, as we've discussed in the past, is... What can you do to prevent it? What proactive steps can be taken in terms of educating people, people developing social skills, people understanding love bombing, for example? What are the red flags? What are the red flags? And, uh, you know, if there was more done in that space, then people perhaps would be less manipulated. Although I think the sex drive is very powerful for some and difficult to overcome, even with the greatest of insight. Yeah, but we talk about red flags when it comes to, I'm thinking particularly about domestic violence when we spoke to Helen, for example, Helen Cumming, so who talked to us about her experiences with a coercive, violent husband who she left. But, I, you know, we do have relationships where the woman is the coercive and potentially violent partner. And I think sometimes that's not talked about. And I think with Black Widows, that gives us access to some of those discussions around those when women, you know, are performing these really abusive, manipulative behaviours. Where does it start? When does it start? How does it start? Nature, nurture. Nature, nurture, social learning. And maybe it's, um, you know, they develop other skills to become attractive because that's powerful for them. Yep. Yeah, so I think we're going to pick all of that apart a bit more. Um, but for now, I think, you know, we just want to thank Derek because that was a fascinating journey through his book on the subject, his learning on that subject, and ultimately, you know, what he's learned as a person as he's developed as a journalist and his, his personal journey too, which was, I think, really powerful. So thanks to Derek and looking forward to having a chat, picking apart more about Black Widows. Absolutely. 
Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. 